Welcome to the Daily Horror Habit Podcast. I'm your host, Jay Krieger, bringing you daily reviews of current and classic horror movies for your twisted pleasure. Be aware that these reviews and discussions may include spoilers. And as always, I hope you enjoy. Welcome to another installment of my year-long Masters of Horror celebration, in which I'm joined by a guest every Friday to chat about one of their favorite films from our month's featured director. For the month of March, we're honoring none other than the master of body horror himself, David Cronenberg. And today's episode highlights two sides of a similar body horror coin, and Cronenberg's media-frenzied films 1983's Videodrome and 1999's Existence. Videodrome follows scuzzy and sensationalist TV president Max Wren, played by James Woods, who stumbles upon a dangerous new television broadcast known as Videodrome, which specializes in fetishizing violence. Though once Max is exposed to Videodrome, he begins having increasingly strange and violent hallucinations that might be his undoing. And then we dive into 1999's Existence, which sees virtual reality video game designer Allegra Geller, played by Jennifer Jason Lee, on the run from assassins with the help of a reluctant bodyguard, Ted, played by Jude Law. In an effort to save Geller's work, they undergo a number of in-game experiences that blur the lines between fantasy and reality. And to help me break down these ruminations on flesh and technology is once again returning friend of the show, Micah. Micah, welcome back to the show. Thanks, Jay. Great to be back. Yeah, I'm looking forward to talking with you about uh, at least one of my favorite Cronenberg films and uh, Existence. This was a first time watch for me, so I'm really excited to uh, kind of run the full gamut of uh, David Cronenberg's kind of blending of technology and uh, and flesh as one of his uh, many obsessions that he likes to uh, ruminate on. Definitely. And it's something that's been throughout his career. So it's it's cool. We get to talk about, you know, kind of bookending parts of his career in a way, um, very far apart, but very related. But I think before we get into the two films that we're going to talk about today, I'm kind of curious about your uh, Cronenberg origin story. Do you remember your first introduction to his work? I mean, it had to have been The Fly. It, it just it just had to have been. Um, and I, I do remember first, see, I think I saw the original Fly from the 50s first when I was a kid. And I, I saw both of these things on TV. And then at some point, I ended up seeing um, the the uh, 86 fly, and I'm sure it was edited for TV, but it definitely, even as edited, made a significant impression on me. Uh, and then much, much later in life, I remember, I do remember seeing The Brood, and it's just, it kind of, it was so weird and so different and so unlike any other horror movie I, I saw, it, it definitely uh, made a mark. And then, uh, I, I definitely remember seeing Existence in college, pretty, probably pretty soon after it came out, uh, and being really intrigued by that, and then much later actually seeing Video Drum for the first time. Yeah, The Fly was my first introduction to him, and I remember it being so distinct because it was unlike anything that I'd ever seen before, like you had said. And I think that he does such a good job of blending in these very extreme, again, like body horror moments, which is what he's known for, but... I feel at least in the terms of the fly, like that movie begins very familiar, right? It begins with like just two people meeting, having a conversation. And then the his ability to really like inject these horrifying moments that come out of nowhere into a very sort of mundane to a certain extent film, like you're very familiar with the way that it begins. And then to kind of just like drop these horrific moments into it is really a quality of his that struck me from a young age. Yeah, I mean, one thing that's amazing about Cronenberg and is consistent with all his very different movies. I mean, he's not—he's not just a horror filmmaker. He's—he's he's a great filmmaker, and he makes other kinds of movies too. It's just a really interesting guy with an interesting career. Is you know, all his movies are just really um, 
I don't know what the right adjective is. I mean, they're, they're good movies and they're legit standalone movies. And he, you never, ever get the sense, even though he has become known for body horror, you, I always get the sense in watching his films that that's kind of, you know, that is there to serve the movie and not the other way around, right? You see a lot of, especially kind of newer, younger filmmakers, and they really go all in with the gore and the body horror. Um, and e even if it's still a good film, Sometimes you get the impression like, oh, I really wanted to make a gross movie. And then they went and made a movie, right? And you never ever get the sense that with Cronenberg ever. Like you watch his films, no matter what it is, and you get the sense, oh, he had a very specific message and plot and all these things were very, very well thought out. And the body horror is there to support the story and support the acting and support the characters. And it's never the other way around. That really comes across in all his films. Yeah, it never feels like a string of body horror moments, right? It kind of, and the moments that string those moments along never feel like an afterthought, like you had said. It's very constructed in a way where it is feels like a story that just happens to have these horrific moments in it. Whereas nowadays, I would think that some body horror movies are people that set out maybe just to make a gross movie. Everything that is tying those gross moments between one another are basically an afterthought, it seems like sometimes. Of course, there's exceptions, but... I feel that that is probably an element in revisiting a lot of early Cronenberg works that really makes um, him stand out from not only that era, but to today. And I think to your point, it's interesting that the last decade of his career has not been in body horror or in horror in general. It's been more of these kind of just stories about people. And I think that maybe to speculate a little bit, like his ability to get into the hor into filmmaking was horror films. That was kind of the easy in at the time probably for the types of films that were available to him or the types of stories and whatnot and so to see him really move on from that almost it really does make you look back at his older works and be like okay he was actually able to tell these types of stories he tells now but inserting them into this um body horror uh, narrative yeah I, I i know this this is not the episode on the fly but i did read an, an interview or uh, actually i think i listened to an interview with cronenberg once and he talked about he actually was going to be a scientist an entomologist so his background was when he was like in high school he thought he wanted to be an entomologist and everyone thought he was going to be a bug expert and it's just kind of hilarious that he turned out to have made like the most famous insect movie of all time <laughs> And then, of course, Naked Lunch, right, is also all about bugs. Uh, so it's just it's, his career kind of came full circle in a very strange way. Yeah. And it's that doesn't surprise me because you think about one of his fascinations that he explores in a lot of his films is science. And obviously technology is an extension of that. And yeah, that's uh, that's very funny to just to learn that, like, oh, he actually had a background in that. And again, him taking an interest and then applying it into his filmmaking is always uh, is always great to see filmmakers do because there's kind of this uh, age-old adage where people have said like you want to have multiple disciplines outside of whatever you're doing in terms of like you want to have a broad pool of interests that you can draw from rather than kind of just being hyper focused on one thing and that's an interesting example of him just like taking a fascination with science and then really blending that in some truly disturbing ways that make for some really timeless uh, horror films. Sure. But uh, in beginning with Videodrome, I'm interested, what about Videodrome for you is a standout from some of his other 80s films? Uh, yeah, I mean, it's it's it was so forward looking, I feel like. Um, I, I, I know that 
and, and both Videodrome and Existence, I feel like, are in a lot of ways just products of their time, but somehow have managed to age really well. Um, I mean, this time in the early 80s, right, this was the beginning of the VHS boom, and you had people concerned about what was going to be the future of cinema and the future of media, and what was it, what did it mean that people could have media, you know, in their homes all the time. Um, and that was a very new and scary thing at the time. And as we'll see in Existence, it was a differently new and differently scary thing then, and it's a differently new and differently scary thing now, which is what makes these movies so timeless. Um, I mean, Videodrome is a pretty simple story, right? You've got uh, basically a, a porn executive who uh, is looking for the newest, most titillating, dirtiest stuff he can peddle. Uh, and he goes, he ends up getting taken down this strange rabbit hole, uh, which may or may not be fully or partially real. Uh, and, and it's just, it's a very interesting noir uh, film. So it, it has a, it kind of has a very, even like a 1940s film feel to it in a lot of ways, I feel like. Um, obviously a very R-rated film that would never have been made in the 40s, but just the whole character and the attitude of him kind of going on this strange journey and making, meeting shady characters um, and all this is a is just a really interesting thing. And, and to juxtapose that with, um, you know, modern, what what we now know of media, I mean, the, the movie Videodrome begins with this TV commercial, right? It talks about, oh, this is the TV that you take to bed with you, right? The whole film is about imagining a world in 1983 where, oh, wouldn't it be crazy? What kind of world would it be if people could have, you know, televisions and access to porn in every room 24 hours a day? And guess what? That's exactly what happened 30 years later. Yeah, and I think that that's something that I've revisited this film now probably three times over the last year and a half just because it's one that I've come to appreciate a lot more in terms of just how heavy-handed the commentary is on kind of like society's obsession with consumption and how that grows out of control with kind of like you said this boom of VHS media and having it in the home and have access to it whenever you want and how socially that changes people in the way that they live their lives and whatnot and to really see that kind of just grow and grow in this incredibly surreal and extreme manner I think it it's it has an absurdist quality to it, but Cronenberg's handling of it, in terms of just his real, his like creative uh, deployment of exploring that in these very surreal and far out moments, and some of these awesome body horror moments, which we'll talk about during the course of our discussion. But it really does have a parallel to to real world society, to a grounded portrayal of our obsession, right? I mean, like you said, the film opens with him; he has to have a videotape that has a wake-up call from his assistant telling him about his meetings and things like that. By uh, all means, I mean, it's something that he could just like learn as soon as he gets to the office or he could just write it down, but it really is a great example of just how intent, like how obsessed he is with the technology that he has to have this type of thing and how it dictates his life um, in a really sort of obsessive way. And then like you said, kind of he's this porn peddler essentially and then he goes to like the seedy hotel and buys different porn to, uh, to show like his uh, uh, studio executives and whatnot. Yeah and so, I mean it's really something that's really interesting about Cronenberg in all his films but especially in this one in Existence is 
you know, some of some of the messaging is kind of subtle, but but he he really is intelligent about where it doesn't need to be subtle, and he can get his point across. He just does it and moves on. And specifically, I'm thinking about is for example the, the homeless shelter that he goes to, and you know, all these homeless guys are coming in for their hourly or daily fix of television, basically. Instead of a, instead of getting soup, they get television. Um, but it, it's called the cathode ray mission, right? It's like. I'm, this is nothing subtle about this. I'm telling you, this is symbolism <laughs> of what is going on here. Um, but he can make that, you know, in a single image, it takes up three seconds of film time that gives you everything you need to know about the message he's trying to send for, with that with that portion of his story. And then that gives him, as a filmmaker, I think, um, a lot of bandwidth and a lot of time to really develop other things, you know, in a more subtle and nuanced way. Um, I just think it's really interesting. Like, and of course, in existence, it's it's even kind of more blatant in parts. We have, you know, we have a gas station man named Gas, and think like some of this stuff. Like, let's just let's not be subtle about this. But then I can take your mind and attention, audience, in a more developed place where I really want you to focus, right? Yeah. So for as like far out and weird of a concept as Videodrome is, and the very kind of like bizarre and surreal imagery that follows very shortly after the film begins. I was really impressed on this rewatch of just how succinct he is at introducing us to Max Ren, introducing us to this world, essentially uh, like teeing up the social commentary that the entire film is going to deal with within the first like open, like few minutes, five minutes of the movie. And I feel that he does such a great job of just getting us into this world, exposing us to these very sort of, like you said, titillating uh, concepts and imagery right from the jump. So that way, it's almost so shocking just the introduction of some of these things like it starts with him like watching porn at like nine in the morning or something with his bosses and then they go into showcasing uh, Videodrome which is somebody getting hogtied essentially and then like beaten on TV um, or on a broadcast and so he just introduces these very shocking concepts but then he never really lingers on anything for too long it never feels it's very uh like scummy but it never feels overly egregious in terms of like i'm gonna linger on this for a long period of time like having that scene where he's watching videodrome for the first time we don't have to watch five minutes of that we don't have to kind of like what they don't the uh, geisha porno that they show at the beginning we don't have to watch five minutes of that right there's like 30 seconds maybe not even that and then we just move on to the next bit of exploring this world exploring uh the types of things that max ren is into Although I, though I will say, I heard that um, that geisha porn sequence in particular was apparently originally much, much longer and he oh. had to <laughs> way, way down to get past censors because they wouldn't, they kept giving him an NC-17 and he had to cut mm. like a ton of it. So it's very, very short in the actual film. No, but, but going back to something you said, I mean, it's, it's, so it's a fantastical movie, but the part, like the parts that need to be grounded in reality, in reality, feel so real. Like the scene, like with him, you know, the, the guys sitting around in a boardroom watching porn. That's exactly what it really is like to be. I mean, I'm not one, but I assume that's what real like studio executives, especially if you think about again the time. I'm talking about the early '80s. Like this was the birth of Skinamax, where Skinamax became this like softcore. Um, like the place for softcore porn before the internet. So this is a very real grounded like, oh yeah, this is just, this is a part of the world that people don't like to talk about, but that is, this is a business that's really happening. And this is, he's making a film about a real thing that's happening. It's just his film then after the first 20 minutes starts 
taking it in new places. Yeah, and I think that also like those scenes serve a purpose other than just being titillating, right? Because you're learning something about, especially Max Ren in those moments where Max Ren, when they're watching, especially that porno, he's like, oh, this is too sweet. This is too nice. This isn't nasty enough for my audience. And it's like, oh, okay, now I know everything I need to know about this guy and his audience. But also when he watches the Videodrome broadcast for the first time and it's that person getting beat up and the other guy won't even look at it. The technician won't watch it. But Max Ren is like, this is fantastic. Like, there's no plot. There's no character development. It's just torture and murder. This is terrific. And it's like, okay, that's all I need to know about this guy in the span of less than five minutes to kind of learn about the protagonist and not necessarily being a protagonist that you necessarily like, but he feels like the perfect protagonist for exploring this really kind of scummy, scuzzy world that Cronenberg's cooked up. Yeah, totally. And I mean, in terms of kind of just once Videodrome gets introduced, right, and he starts having these hallucinations of violence and whatnot, I really love, and this is something you and I talked about uh, before recording, something that I think Cronenberg, and especially in this film, shares, and there could be some parallels between um, some of David Lynch's work in that it's a very surreal portrayal of what is happening. And there's this very dream, trance-like um, introduction of the hallucinations that begin to overtake Max Ren's world and especially like phasing in and out of the hallucinations. If you aren't paying attention, you might actually miss when he is in reality and when he is hallucinating in a way that on my third rewatch, I think in like a year, like I was saying, it's really apparent just how skillfully deployed all of these hallucinations are throughout the film. It really is true. And, and I, I mean, I've watched it several times too. And I, I still, I could not, I cannot figure out when the hallucinations start. Personally, I mean, I think there's an argument to be made that the Nikki character, like, you know, the main woman in the film, she could be entirely a hallucination. Um, I think that's, you could argue that, although then he goes to see her at her talk show studio in a very brief scene. But other than that, everything about her could be a hallucination. And it's also like the whole interview, you know, the very near the beginning of the film when they do that talk show scene on, um, the, oh, the Rena King show, that's what it's called, right? The Rena King show, they're doing this interview. And Rena King turns to Nikki. I, I, it seems like she's set up to be the, like, the other side, right? The, like, anti-porn side. But she right. immediately, like, she asks her what she thinks. She's immediately like, oh, yeah, I'm totally into that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but I think that that ambiguity that we're talking about in terms of when does the dream begin and when does it uh, end, I think that's pretty, that's kind of the point of the film, right? Is that... You, he is always in a heightened state of stimulation and he's so into these very taboo topics that he surrounds himself with that. And I mean, to go, your point, you brought up the talk show. They talk about like media's uh, influence on society and do violent images and overly sexualized images like reflect on people actually acting those things out or inspiring them to do these things. And that really does just tie into the whole idea of these characters are hyper-violent, hyper-sexual people, and when does the hallucination begin and when does their reality actually begin? Um, and that's something that I just am super impressed by in his ability to employ that in a way that doesn't feel distracting and it's consistently uncomfortable. Like, no matter how many times I watch this movie, the content and the way it's presented is just so uncomfortable because of how casually it's introduced. Like, this idea that like when they are hooking, when he takes um, Nikki back to his apartment, she like has 
cut marks on herself and talking about how she's into that. And then she like puts a cigarette out on her. And it's like Cronenberg introduces some of these taboo topics in such a casual way. And it, again, it's not a whole egregious scene. I think it's probably like 10, 15 seconds long. It doesn't linger on it for very long, but he just kind of like keeps moving to the next thing and watching how he kind of handles sex and violence in this really uncomfortable blending of the two. It just really speaks to the commentary that the entire film is making on how people are essentially becoming desensitized to these images that maybe only 10 years ago or five years ago, people wouldn't, would they would uh, shy away from even mentioning. And so the idea that now in the 80s, they're like, yeah, this is kind of just like a part of society. It's a, uh, it's a very jarring con uh, contrast to like, I don't know, maybe some of the subject matter that other films in the same era were, uh, were tackling. Yeah, and I think it's, he, he does, he manages to say two things which are kind of opposite. I think one is you know, a commentary on the state of things in the 80s, right? It is time. And like you said, there's the line in the Rena King show where the doctor says, we all live in a highly excited state of overstimulation, you know, right? And that's certainly true. And that was more true then, and it's even more true now. But then there's also, so on the one hand, he's saying, okay, this is a new and dangerous time. Um, but I, I think there's a couple things in the film, and I've only noticed this kind of on rewatches, is how much he, he makes reference to um, kind of the, like, this, is always, this, this has always been humanity, right? We've always been this way. And this whole thing, yes, television is the retina of the mind's eye, right? There's that great line, retina of the mind's eye. But there's also this scene near the end, you know, in the eyeglass shop with Barry Convex, right? Another very in-your-face reference name. But um, but they refer to the eyeglasses as a machine, right? A reference to like, yes, the television is the retina of the mind's eye, but human beings have been just, you know, intentionally messing with their perception of things since time began. And there's other even more subtle things like um, Nikki's red dress, right? Because there's that line at the in the in the in the the talk show where he says to Nikki, like, oh, why are you wearing that red dress, right? That's to stimulate me. That's something that women have been doing to men is his, his argument, right, for millennia. And then the other, even more subtle is there's the scene when he goes to meet the older woman to try and negotiate, right, buying uh, her weird, like, <laughs> yeah. um, but there, I, I noticed for the first time, the camera really lingers on the belly dancer there's this mm -hmm. whole belly dancing scene that's a good 10, 15 seconds on this belly dancer, which totally doesn't have to be there. But I do I do feel like Cronenberg is trying to say, like, oh, human beings have this tendency to, we want to, like, manipulate each other and arouse each other and, and distort our vision. And that's something that's very old and ancient. And this is mm -hmm. just a new way of us finding ways to do that. Yeah, it's not so much that like we've become more fascinated with these topics. It's more that they're just in our face, right? They're more readily available. And having this explosion of media and new forms in this sense that you can get anything you want whenever you want it. Now, you don't have to wait for the movie theater. You can get it at a video store and bring it home and watch it over and over and over. It's more about our inability to kind of self-regulate and be like, we can enjoy these things, but not let them kind of overcome who we are or let them over uh, overburden our life with them. And I think that Cronenberg is very cynical in that regard and that he's like, yeah, if you give people an inch, they're going to take the whole uh, whole foot and just be like, yeah, we're 
I could buy this VHS tape of this movie and watch it once, but in reality, you're probably going to watch it over and over and over to the point of obsession. And that belly dancer scene you mentioned was interesting, and I can't remember if either of the characters, when the camera's lingering on the belly dancer, if they even look at her. And my recollection was is that they don't even acknowledge that there's a belly dancer there because that is probably considered so like soft core now based on the things that they're interested in, like for their different markets, that they don't even register that as being an erotic image because of like the types of things that they want to put on their network or the types of sort of just extreme content that Max Ren is interested in putting onto his network or that he's looking for. Yeah, I think you're totally right. But uh, in terms of just the way in which, because I want to go back just in terms of like his presentation of the hallucinations and for me, something that really makes the film so uncomfortable to watch is that it really has this feeling like you're watching like a snuff film almost in a lot of ways. And just how casually he introduces these this really uncomfortable blending of sex and violence. And especially like when we get to that, the uh, repeated scene where there's that person being uh, tied up and beaten and stuff. And just that room, he has these uh, recurring dreams of the room or hallucinations and it gets to the point where there's not even a person there and it kind of just, uh, the camera just lingers on that like red clay backdrop. And it, I love those scenes so much because it's Cronenberg being very restrained in some instances, which I think is funny considering how unrestrained the film is and how extreme it feels at times, in that he's able to capture what I would imagine a snuff film would be in that it's just this very uncomfortable room. And even if nothing's happening, the set design of it is one that really makes it seem like this is something you should not be watching whether they bring in the person or not like the entire movie has this feel to it where it's like this is something that is forbidden in a way that is different than other things that you watch and that's something that i think has aged really well and it's one of those qualities that i think is what separates this film from a lot of his other films especially from the 80s in that if you watch something like the fly it just feels like a monster movie from the 80s and that's not a dig at that it's just in terms of comparing it to something like videodrome it feels like it's a film that is aware of hyper aware of just the way that you're consuming this story there's something distinct about the way that this movie's made that feels very foreign to the way that normal films are made and for me that's something that i think really fuels that kind of um the surreal hallucinations that kind of permeate throughout the film I agree, and I, I think that some of the most disturbing films are the ones that are brightly colored and brightly lit, you know? Mm. And we can all think of, there's lots of examples of horror films that some of the best ones are that way, are done that way. Um, you know, much of The Shining, you've got um, Midsommar, I mean, there's so many great examples of great films that um, are about, could be about seedy, violent things, but they're not happening in dark alleys, right? Um, and that's a different, I mean, like, the only other snuff film or film, film film about snuff film that I can think of is Eight Millimeter, right? Which is super like dark, grimy. Like every every frame of that film it needs more light. It's just super dark and depressing and grimy. And this is somehow like it's about kind of a similar topic, but totally different um, atmosphere and different impression. And it's I like in some ways it feels worse. You're like I mean, it's so jarring. Uh, to be thrust into this world and you know it's drawing enough if it were totally real and then with all the hallucinations then you really kind of get lost 
Yeah, and I think that also, like, again, coming back to the social commentary of the entire film, this idea that, like, that in the age that we're at, there's an appetite for very extreme forms of media to the degree that there's this whole government conspiracy, essentially, where they're going to beam these disturbing images out to people in a format that is accessible that only those types of, like, quote-unquote degenerates would seek out. And so the idea that, like, there is enough of an appetite within society, or, or North America, I think is what they're referencing, that actually wants to see those types of images, like people getting murdered in these snuff film type uh, programming. Like, again, it it's frightening in the regard that, yeah, they're manufacturing these disturbing images and videos, but it's almost equally disturbing that there's a market for it to the degree that you can have this um, underlying conspiracy that it's like, hey, there's a significant portion of the population that they feel we need to eradicate. Because what do they say? That uh, Americans and or North people in North America are getting too soft compared to the rest of the world. And right. so the idea that there's enough people that are actually interested in those types of things is almost equally as frightening for the images that um, that they show at the beginning of the film. Yeah, it's so interesting. I mean, obviously Cronenberg is a Canadian filmmaker, but this is a mm -hmm. this is an American movie. This is definitely yeah. an American movie. And I almost feel like, you know, we have this whole conspiracy thread through this, right? Where basically he's being set up as a Manchurian candidate to go be an assassin, which is all super interesting. But ultimately, I, I really feel like that's not what this movie's about. I feel like this, this movie, there's this whole conspiracy. It's a very Cold War era feeling film. And all of this espionage and nonsense, which is kind of hard to follow and convoluted. I think it's intentionally hard to follow and convoluted because that all that stuff doesn't matter. This is an allegory about Videodrome. And Videodrome is real, right? The concept that we are all the video word made flesh, right? That's that's real. That's real life. That was really happening then. It's really happening now. I feel like all this espionage Cold War stuff is there to get past censors and critics and make it feel like, oh, there's a little more plot here and look at this interesting anti-Russian movie I made in the early 80s. No, that, that stuff's all very convenient um, in there, but it's not really necessary. And it, it really is there as a subtext for what the film is really about, which is about our our vulnerability as human, not as Americans, but as human beings, like how how much of a control our perception of the world has on us. Yeah, and also, I mean, that really is a commentary also, I find, on being the, like corporate espionage, this idea that we're based, that people, the normal people are basically prawn, uh, pawns that are being manipulated to doing things by major corporations and this idea. Yeah, it gets into the weeds a little bit with the kind of Manchurian candidate angle, which I definitely agree is uh, more convoluted and kind of just, just there to maybe be able to talk up the narrative in the film a little bit to kind of give it some more structure to bring about these... Um, these kind of just like the technical wizardry of all the body horror stuff that we can get into in a minute because I want to highlight um, some of those moments that stood out to you because there's quite a few and uh, I'd be interested to hear which ones you thought were definitely uh, a standout. So for you, like what are a couple of examples of the uh, body horror practical work that really stands out to you in Videodrome? Yeah, I mean, Rick, Baker, Rick Baker's effects here are just legendary and for a reason and they hold up so well. I mean, I watched this again this week, and I was I was just blown away um, about how good the effects are. Um, and and, and the, the TV scene is just amazing. Uh, and I remember I remember seeing that. You know, I, I'm sure I was in a teenager or something, uh, maybe maybe 20 or something when I first saw it. So it was already you know, 20 years old at that time. 
Um, I remember seeing that like, oh, that's a cool effect, Th thinking it was some kind of digital effect. But now knowing yeah. it is, you know, 100% practical, um, it's just astonishingly good. Um, and it's so, um, it feels so appropriate, right? Mm -hmm. the, the film, the, the fact that he's kind of, just just the way his face gets absorbed in the TV screen, he's caressing and it's kind of pulsing. Like everything about it is so key to the message that this film is about. Like, yes, I'm going, you're going to be literally absorbed by your television, right? And you're going to want to make love to your television because your whole reality is going to be your television. Um, and that's how much of a hold it it has on him. I mean, every, the, the stomach effect obviously is awesome. Um, but the coolest thing for me was, I think, the TV scene for sure, and the and the the gross like pulsing VHS tapes, <laughs> which for the younger for the younger listeners uh, who may not even seen a VHS tape, it was very like strange and weird. It's <laughs> pulsing a live VHS tape. Yeah, the the uh, pulsating VHS tapes and TV reminded me because the first time I had you on, I think it was to talk about the haunting, and that reminded me of that scene where the walls are like bending. And whatnot, it's that same type of thing where something that should not be almost breathing is having that same effect. And that was something that uh, really stood out to me too. But yeah, I think that what I really appreciate about his specific brand of just bizarre imagery and whatnot is that his weird style is in service of this particular story, right? Where we talked about David Lynch uh, a few minutes ago and Sometimes his stuff doesn't necessarily click for me just because it feels at times like it's weird for the sake of being weird. Whereas I find that especially in Videodrome, all of the far out effects and whatnot and the kind of having an orifice in your stomach and sticking a gun in there and then it disappearing kind of thing, which is completely gross and very strange, but it's in service of this specific narrative, right? It's kind of like talking about psychological scares being more effective than jump scares in the sense that psychological scare is tied to a character's identity rather than something that is kind of like a quick a quick little moment that you forget about whereas Cronenberg like all the weirdness in his films I feel is literally in service to that film's specific narrative rather than just being gross or just being weird for the sake of it even though it is very weird and that's undeniable uh yeah I mean listen you can't get more kind of obvious than a you know a, a gross pornographer sticking a handgun into a makeshift vagina right yeah. the film <laughs> is about violence and sex <laughs> that's what it's about and um but and, and that's something that cronenberg has at least in his original screenplays right has always been i mean crash is literally about that it's about right. being aroused by violence <laughs> that's what the film is about and and Videodrome and Existence both are right up there. Um, and he also did a history of violence, right? This is a man who's very interested in exploring that part of, of people's minds, especially men's minds. Yeah, and I mean, even, there's even some of, like, again, his blending of violence and sex. There's multiple, there's two instances where other people are literally sticking things into that uh, makeshift vagina in Max's stomach, where they're sticking that VHS tape in there that has the uh, new programming essentially and having that forced onto him is a very sexually charged violent act and it's one of those things where you could just kind of like be so surprised by that imagery up front on your first viewing but then really understanding just how much how indicative this film is in every instance is indicative of his fascination with science and sex and violence and technology and kind of 
blending that into one big uh, body horror, uh, fl new flesh cocktail is really a film that I think, especially from this period, is the most indicative of his interests in what he wants to explore in uh, filmmaking. And this film, I mean, on every rewatch, I just get a new appreciation just for how he is completely unapologetic in pursuing these things. Like, I, it, whenever I watch a movie like this, I always think, what is this pitch meeting like? Like, how do you pitch this and get real financing? Because how do people not hear this and just jump up and run away from you as quickly as possible when you're like, yeah, they're going to get give this guy a makeshift uh, vagina in his stomach and he's going to have a metal gun hand that turns into a fleshy gun. Like, he is so unapologetic in these far out ideas. But then, like you said, Rick Baker did the special effects. And it's this thing where it doesn't matter what the idea is, so long as you have the means to execute on it in a way that is not only memorable, but is of a caliber that you almost look down on other films as being lesser because they didn't have the um, craftsmanship to bring that to life in the best, most disgusting way possible. Yeah, I mean, I, I think this was one of the, and I know The Dead Zone was the same year, but I don't know when, they, which one was filmed or like filmed first. Um, right. But wasn't this in the era that there's that special few years in Canada where they had this, um, this special like tax break structure that they came up with. And so corporations were basically incentivized to fund films. And I, I think this was one of them where you just said, you didn't even need a, they didn't care what the movie was about. Just a company would just hand you like, here's 50 grand, go make a movie. I don't even care. I need the tax write off. But I think this is one of those, he got, he got to sneak in an incredibly original film that may not have ever been made had it not been in this particular era with this, weird tax setup that's very possible and that sound that that sounds right for the era in which this came out in but something that i was just thinking about that i really appreciate especially on this last rewatch is just how basically the narrative and how it kind of just continues to build in terms of like the next evolution because that becomes this big concept especially in the middle half of the film onwards to the finale the idea that videodrome is the next evolution for people and how in the grounded sort of uh, themes of the film, it's technology is evolving human society in a way. This, of course, is the most heightened version of that where people are growing literally new organs uh, and growing tumors and things like that because of the technology. And this idea of a new consciousness stems from that, right? And so this idea that you're basically, you're changing your own perception of reality and how all of this is in service of exploring the next evolution in people. And that's one of those concepts that I think is really helped by just how uh, practical effects heavy the film is and that they're able to capitalize on that in the last minute of the film where that basic gun that he had has evolved from being fused to his hand to literally being a new organ. And so then that, and then of course he kills the, the, uh, the other TV uh, CEO. And then that guy basically like explodes and you see all the new organs that are pouring out of his body. And it's this, very, again, like very Cronenberg heightened uh, portrayal of a very grounded concept that we started with, which just being, yeah, TV and new forms of media has evolved all the way into like a new mutant uh, evolution of the human body. Well, as they say, right, the new flesh. Death to yeah. the drum, long live the new flesh. This is the new flesh. So, I mean, what do you, what do you, do you think, do you view Videodrome as anti-porn, anti-consumer, anti-TV, pro-something? Like, how do you, what's your takeaway from this? What do you think is the ultimate kind of, if you want to be reductive about the film, like, what do you think he's trying to say? 
Yeah, I think I view it through just a, it's a very cynical lens of people, right? Because it's not anti anything because to be, I just don't think that that's anything, that's not a message that Cronenberg is interested in. And I think that his view of humanity is one that it's, we're too far gone to try to uh, instill any type of like prohibition or walking back human interest because these things that used to be viewed as taboo now, in the words of Max Ren, are very soft. They're very sort of, it's not what my audience is interested in. And I think it's more about if we're given something that we enjoy, that we will basically run off the rail. Some of us will run off the rails with it and literally let it become an obsession and rule our lives. And this idea that if we don't, I don't even know if he's saying like there's something we can do about it, but it's kind of like this idea that if certain safeguards aren't put into place or if people don't learn to just enjoy things in moderation, that it's going to get to the point where we're going to watch things that we know will give us brain tumors and turn us into these uh, new flesh monsters, essentially. But um, that's that's a very kind of just exaggerated portrayal of that. But I think that it really is a statement on humans and just it's in our nature to be to overconsume things. And I think that that doesn't stop with the types of media we consume. It's in everything. It's in food. It's in resources, being natural resources and things to that extent. What about you? What is your big uh, your big takeaway in terms of like the statement that he's trying to make with Videodrome? I, th I think I agree. I think it's it's definitely just a film about how humans are um, and the dangers of you know what what we can let media do to ourselves. Um, I mean, there's this great line like the battle for the mind of America will take place in the video arena, um, and that's been that's so prescient. That's so true. Uh, and every year that we live, it becomes more and more true. Um, and I think he did want to say something about the consequences, like you said, of unchecked. I think um, there's I think there's a lot you could explore in this film about violence against women. And mm -hmm. it's like it's really interesting. He keeps in his hallucinations. He keeps projecting Nikki's face on various you know his assistant, that other pornographer that he does business with. There's all these different women. And I mean, you get so lost in the film, you can't even keep track of who's been murdered, whom did he kill, who did somebody else kill. You kind of can't really even tell. Um, and he just keeps coming back to these fetishes in his own mind of Nikki, even after she's dead or maybe dead. Um, and he, he gets stuck in kind of a loop in his own mind that's kind of self-inflicted. And is that video drum? Is that just himself? You know, we, none of us know. Yeah, where does the man begin and where does Videodrome end kind of thing. And I think that the commentary in this movie is so strong. And yet on every rewatch, I think my least favorite part of this movie is just James Wood's performance, <laughs> which I mean, I love. I really do love this movie. And I think that it's probably one of Cronenberg's strongest movies from this period in time, even though he has what I think is a character is an actor that is just very kind of just hollow. He's it almost feels like he's reluctant to be there a lot of the time in terms of just not his it's not even that his line delivery is good on a lot of these lines like uh long live the new flesh like that's just such that phrase has so much weight to it and so much meaning to it tied to the fact that it's this evolution and that people have essentially just they're going to keep evolving into this new thing and yet when he gives that line for me i laugh every time because it's like it's like he does he finds the lines that he's delivering so ridiculous and to a certain extent, they are ridiculous, but at the same time, like, there's just nothing about his performance that I like in this movie. <laughs> I mean, I don't. I wouldn't be that harsh on him. I don't. I don't know if I view it that way. I mean, I'm, 
I'm not, I can't, I'm not even a huge James Wood fan. I mean, I, he's a fine actor, I think. Um, I can't even off the top of my head think of other films he's been in really. Yeah. <laughs> but I, um, I mean, there is something about this. I, mean, I wonder how much of that was intentional and directed because mm. I feel like Cronenberg really did well. I mean, this is not somebody we're supposed to sympathize or empathize with, right? This is not right. a protagonist that's admirable. Mm. We're just following some guy who's kind of a shell of a human being anyway. Yeah. Um, as he goes and just kind of explores this world and shows us consequences of things. And there's, I mean, one of the lines, um, I forget he even says it, but there's, um, set, t- tells him, uh, talking about video drunk, it has something you don't have. It has a philosophy, right? So I think he's, he's, he's just a corporate exec pornographer, low class pornographer kind of schmuck who doesn't really have a life at all right he has, he has no social life he doesn't other, other than nikki who falls into his lap from his show i mean he has no we have no indication that he has any kind of friends family relationships nothing he's just his whole life is stealing other people's porn videos from satellites <laughs> and then selling them yeah. right that's this is a shell of a human being the film really does drop us into this world and that in the first five minutes you know everything you need to know about him right he starts he's flipping through uh, different types of porn. And then he's like eating crusts of pizza that are left over and dipping it in coffee. Like, it's very weird. It doesn't make sense. This is not a guy that anybody should want to aspire to be based off of the first 30 seconds of his life. And then we see kind of just how he goes about his day and his interests and all those things. So yeah, I guess my complaining about him not do, I mean, if it had been a better performance, maybe I would have started to actually like feel some sympathy or something for this character where that's not the point of the film. He's just kind of this shell of a broken man that is susceptible to becoming a pawn between the uh, corporate espionage games that these uh, two television studios play. I also think the the ending is overall just kind of weak. I mean, I'm not a big fan of the ending um, in a lot of ways. And I, I know that Cronenberg also was very, uh, it seemed ambivalent about, I think he did a whole bunch of reshoots. Like he could not figure out how to end this film. And I think, I think there were three separate endings. Yeah, it, it's, I mean, it's fine if it, it works and you get the film. I mean, the film is great enough to get its message across without some humongous climax. Um, you don't need it, but it is kind of the film. It just kind of feels like it ends, right? It does definitely end on a, uh, a much more underwhelming note, which I think is a great way to segue into our next film, Existence, because that film, for me, has a much more substantive ending, right? It actually is making you think about the entire film that you would just watch in a different way and tying into the big themes of that film. But uh, I think it's worth noting that Existence is the first original screenplay that he had written in 16 years since Videodrome. And so that film really feels like a, just a, conti- a natural progression almost from the ideas that he approached in Videodrome. Uh, and so I'm kind of just interested to hearing your thoughts about uh, Existence because that was a first time watch for me and it was one that I enjoyed a lot of the concepts for, and then we'll, we'll get into it, but I want to hear some of your thoughts about the film. Yeah, well, I did. I definitely, I, I did suggest that we talk about these two films together because they really are so related in a lot of ways. There's a great line from Videodrome, television is reality and reality is less than television, right? And then Existence, I feel like is just the natural evolution of that thought where you know, no one cares about reality anymore. It's just, we're gonna, we can live in video games now. So what's the point? And how do you, if you can be so absorbed in the video game, then what does reality even mean anymore? 
I think before we even get into it, we need to like set the context for existence because, so you have 1999, right? There was a trio of films in 19, before we even get to the trio of films, we have, think about the era, right? This is Y2K. I'm a little bit older than you. So I remember like Y2K was a huge deal. People were really, really worried. And just technology in general was very, very much on people's minds. You also had the very, very beginning of kind of internet gaming, what we would now call the, or the MMPGs or whatever you want to call multi, you know, multi-universe, multiplayer. And World of Warcraft was a few years after this, but EverQuest was uh, there in 99 and that was a big kind of thing at the time. So, and then this all culminated, I feel like with these, you know, you have three very different films that all came out within months of each other. You have The Matrix, Mm-hmm. And you have the Thirteenth Floor, which is a little lesser known, um, but also came out in '99. And you have Existence, and all three of these films were just released months apart in the same summer. And they all have to do with people in virtual reality, right? Or like you know, have people getting caught and not being able to tell the difference between reality and virtual reality. Um, very different films, and I think it's interesting in a lot of ways. The the Thirteenth Floor. I don't, have you ever seen Thirteenth Floor? I it's have a sci-fi not seen like, It's a sci-fi thriller about some company who like comes up with this virtual reality game, and then you know it's on the Thirteenth Floor of this building, and then you find out Thirteenth Floor doesn't even exist, and it's the whole thing of virtual reality, and it's a kind of a spy thriller action movie. Um, I feel like that feels very dated to the late '90s. I feel like The Matrix stole all of the you know oxygen in films in general but certainly films about virtual reality in 99 mm-hmm. um because of how groundbreaking it was with its effects um but that's you know now 20 plus years on that's starting to feel pretty dated mm-hmm. um but existence to me does not feel dated at all no it, it really doesn't out of those three films that's the one that's held up the most it was very low budget relatively mm-hmm. And like I said, because of the Matrix, I mean, nobody even remembered the other two movies that came out at the same time. But, um, and it was, a, I mean, then you had a few months that same summer, you had the Columbine shootings, right? Mm. And so this was, again, a time where, and people at the time were drawing all sorts of parallels, you know, oh, they, you know, the Matrix caused these school shootings and it was- Violent video uh, games. It was this, yeah, violent video games is what caused this. And it was it was the start of that whole national discussion. Um, so 1999 was a very interesting and turbulent year. And the first time people, filmmakers were really, really exploring this. I mean, you had Lawnmower Man in 92, right? But, but other than that, virtual reality was a new thing. Um, and I think only, you know, you had the Wachowskis making a bajillion dollars off this idea. Um, but then David Cronenberg is the only one who took it kind of seriously, I feel like, and tried to do it, tried to extrapolate like, okay, what does this really mean for human beings if this is how we're gonna be playing games from now on? Yeah, I think that what really impressed me about this film that The Matrix tries to dabble in, but I don't think it's nearly as successful at, is this concept of like down the rabbit hole and when does technology begin to blur the lines between reality and fantasy. And that is a concept in this film that I find, given that it's presented in a very grounded, normal world to a certain extent, whereas The Matrix, you've got this whole other kind of, there's robots, it's post-apocalyptic to a certain extent and all these things. You're like, okay, I'm not really gonna buy into this too <laughs> as much, but in terms of existence, 
Having the world based in reality, and now especially knowing what we know about virtual reality and how far that can go, and you hear stories about like people being on that for far too long because they're getting lost in these worlds and things like that, even videos like of people that it starts to mess with their regulation in terms of like how they would actually behave and losing sense of space and things like that when they're using it. It really portrays a very, as weird as the movie is, it gets into a lot of elements of virtual reality and largely speaking about how technology, again, it's a concept that people get over obsessed with things. This idea that the fantasy becomes our new reality because we prefer the fantasy to the reality we live in. I mean, there's a scene where William Defoe has a brief cameo and he talks about like, my real life is the most uh, pathetic form of existence that I have yeah, or something most, like that. The most pathetic plane of reality. So yeah. Cool. And, and it's such a great line and it real that line speaks the most about this whole concept that Cronenberg is essentially picking up from Videodrome and adapting it to more modern technology. But it's the same idea. Our obsession with technology gets away from us and then it literally fundamentally changes our perception of reality or what we would like our reality to be uh, in in life. Right. And so and the, the contrast with the Matrix is so interesting, I think, because like the Matrix is telling everybody, you know, hey, if you know, in virtual reality, maybe you're really a superhero, right? In the in the in the alternate reality, maybe you're really a superhero and you don't even know it. And in in, in existence, Cronenberg is like, yeah, there are alternative realities, and guess what? You're just more pathetic in each one. And it's <laughs> so much, it's like uh, it's a more realistic and and funny and sad like reflection. On where this is really going and you know we're not all gonna get to go you know shoot guns at drones and blow up buildings really we're all just gonna be sitting in hotel rooms doing weird stuff well i think that that is the concept of going down the rabbit hole of virtual reality that is actually pretty terrifying in that you might go so far into the virtual reality that you begin to forget what your starting point was this idea that you could potentially never snap out of it or you might begin to confuse the levels of reality that you're in. I mean, that's a really terrifying concept because if you're like, I don't use virtual reality, but the like the headsets and stuff, but the idea that it could ever get to a place that you could have a game within a game is something that I could see happening in the future in terms of just how this technology is being utilized for video games and things like that. And even if it never gets as intricate as in existence, there are still enough uh, people within society that have this sort of obsessive compulsive issues with technology and with uh, pursuing different mediums that are a source of like fantasy or uh, entertainment that you could see this becoming a real problem. This idea that essentially you get, you run away with the tech, the freedom that is given to you through technology, that could be a legitimate problem that people deal with. And that's just a very, uh, again, sort of a cynical lens that Cronenberg is applying to humans, but at the same time, it's one that I think is definitely, uh, could definitely be a reality. Oh, absolutely. I think that's one of the key messages of this film. I mean, there's there's the line where at one, time, at one point Allegra, I forget what the context is, but she says, like, Pico, no one actually skis anymore. You know that, right? There's no such thing as snow skiing anymore. People just do it on a video game. And, and uh, yeah, that's, that is the danger that he's exploring in both of these films. Um, and the different levels of reality, it's just, it's, I mean, this was eight years, I think, before Inception, right? This, this film was Inception before Inception. <laughs> yeah. 
essentially, yes. Essentially, <laughs> Inception. Um, and it, it's either three or four levels deep you go into the into the games, right? The game within a game within a game. Um, and it's really, you know, he does he does interesting visual things to try and help you stay track, like the hairstyles of, of the characters change through each level of the game. Um, and I also think... Even the world, right? And the, Cause like, the world changes too, yes. Set, like the setting that they're in changes. Um, I mean, like in, in the first layer that they're in, the gas station is just called the country gas station, right? The, the attendant's name is literally just gas. And it's these kind of like very just basic descriptions of things that you would find in like a bad video game. It's like, oh, we need to find the motel. It's just called the motel. There's no like cute name or uh, somebody's last name attributed to it. It's just very basic in what it is. Oh yeah, it's, it's very literal and obvious. I mean, the, 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 there's all these references to, oh, it's your character who said that. And you have to say, I mean, it, it's so blatant, the, the references to non-playable characters in video games, right? Like it, every, all, all, the, all the dialogue feels like the dialogue from a video game, um, very intentionally. And e But again, it's even more so in modern video games, I feel like he was predicting what video games would would really be like, and that is what it's like. You, you know, you, you with regular linear games, even some of the non-linear games, you know, your character has to go interact with certain characters. You have to do these certain specific tasks. Um, your dialogue is kind of scripted way ahead of time, um, and even you know, and there's I feel like there's hints of that even at the beginning of the film. I think there's you can find hints that you're in a game from the very beginning. Um, especially on rewatches, even even there's certain lines like I think it's in the very first level, uh, as you find out later, right? What you think when you first start watching the film, what you think is reality, what you find out later is the first level of the game. There's even references to what Allegra says, like, uh, "Are you friendly or not?" Which is, "I need to play with somebody friendly," and she says that two or three different times, "Are you friendly or not?" And at the line, it just it feels like. You're supposed to click a yes on your controller, <laughs> yeah. right? To like move on to the next part of the game. A lot of the dialogue feels that way, like it's waiting for the Jude Law character to say the right thing to advance the story. And all of the, I mean, I think the acting choices are very intentional and brilliant. Mm -hmm. uh, it's, this is a very, very young Jude Law, before, yeah. way before he got famous, and. Um, you know, you're you're following this character through this experience that he's having, um, and it he feels almost unreal because he's so like virginal, right? Like, oh, I can't. I've never done that before. I've never done this before. I'm and he's being thrust into this whole world of being a bodyguard, even though he's just a PR person, right? And all of that is so. That is how we all feel when we start a new video game, right? That's how video games are programmed, right? You're starting as the protagonist in this new story and you're in a brand new world and everything is new um, and you experience it everything for the first time that's exactly what Jude Law's character is doing throughout the whole course of this movie he's, he's guiding you through just like he were a character that you were controlling with a little analog joystick yeah he is the level zero adventurer in a level 10 quest right I mean he comes in and he doesn't know anything and we're in the same shoes and something that I was very impressed by that he was able to, that Cronenberg was able to replicate from Videodrome and more so in this is present a story that is very, 
it has a lot of commentary that is based in the real world, and yet he's able to put all of his weird imagery in the film, but it never completely takes you out of the movie. Again, this is him having these very kind of just like unrestrained melds, melding of um, technology and flesh, right? I mean, literally the game pad or game pod is connected to you via an umbilical cord and it's a literal like fleshy being that has parts and bones and things inside of it, which is completely insane and so gross and weird. But at the same time, what he's saying in the context of the film about virtual reality, about its effects on us, about people that can become lost in different layers of things and lose their sense of reality and purpose and things like that, like that's not very common. Again, like there are some directors that I feel have tried to include very strange imagery and then make a commentary at the same time, but almost their imagery is almost more, um, it's distracting to a certain extent that it almost takes me out of it where I'm just like, okay, this is too ridiculous of a concept, but somehow Cronenberg is able to have these kind of absurdist images and then melding them with real world sentiment that actually holds, uh, that actually is a nightmare because of the uh, parallels between our world and his world. Right. And it's, um, I mean, I, I still haven't figured out what the, why he chose like amphibians and salamanders to be such a focus of the film. Yeah. <laughs> but at least it's something very strange and memorable. And it does serve, I think it's, it's, you want some, he wanted something jarring and memorable and kind of weird and gross, but it really links the layers together, right? You have these, you know, the two-headed salamander in level one becomes the special that they eat in level two, right? And there's this blending between the different levels of the game. And then you have the gun, right? In level one again, which he in level two or three or whatever, he's making that same gun uh, to use to progress to the next, the next level of the game or whatever, right? So I think having these weird, Having these weird special effects is a way of helping guide you through and, and remembering that you're in the game um, and helping keep track of the level, I think. Yeah, that's very video game-like, right? I mean, you introduce variables early on and then you build on those variables instead of just introducing something that is like a foreign feature in level five that has no basis in the original because then it's like, okay, well, you just like threw in this thing that has nothing to do with the fundamentals of the game. It feels very foreign to it. And that was something that really helped me to stay tethered to the story in a way where these familiars keep popping up, right? Especially the further into the game we go, the dog keeps reoccurring. People keep talking about the dog brought me the gun. I think two or three characters say that. And like, I laughed every time somebody said that because it's so weird, but at the same time, it still is tethering me to the point where I'm trying to figure out whether this is a reality or if they're still in the game. But at the same time, I never feel completely lost. And I think that that's a talent that Cronenberg has in that he's able to make these worlds accessible just enough that you never sit around and you just go, well, this is dumb. I don't understand anything that's happening. There's a good portion of the film that I didn't understand until the very end of the film, but it was never presented in a way where I began to like mentally check out from it and be like, I really don't care. I just want the reveal. Um, but I have to go back to the bone gun for a second because that is one of the coolest things I've seen in one of his more modern movies. Just, I mean, it's so bizarre and random, but again, there's a functionality behind it, right? They talk about that the reason that it's bone, it's not just that it's weird, that's part of it, it's very weird, but also the idea that the purpose of it is that it's undetectable. And for me, like, especially watching this in 2020, 3D printed firearms is a real thing. And that is something that 
is a fear of 3D printed firearms, this idea that they could be undetectable or something like that. So almost like looking at it in a more modern lens than when the film came out, I'm like, yeah, it's weird and ridiculous, but at the same time, the functionality of why that choice is made is not ridiculous. It serves a real purpose. And it, of course, he runs with that concept in that he's shooting teeth at people, which is insane. But I just love that whole scene later where the callback is, is that he's eating that disgusting dish at the Chinese restaurant in the middle of the forest. And he literally is eat sucking the meat off the bones and then making a gun out of that. And I just think that's an awesome callback because again, it's introduced in the first level and then two levels later, or one level later, it's a callback to it. And you're like, oh yeah, I remember this. So this is not just a random occurrence. The footwork is there and getting us to this point where he actually gets to wield the uh, the bone gun himself. Yeah, that definitely one of the coolest firearms in the history of film. It's yeah. <laughs> something so, so original. Um, it's just incredible. I did want to go back to one thing you said about um, keeping track of the, the levels and the references to reality. Um, at, I think the, when Allegra calls that she, she sees the two-headed salamander when she's outside of the gas station, she calls the salamander a sign of the times. Um, and she's also, while she's waiting for him to get his bioport, she, there's this shots of her like feeling the texture of the walls. And, all, and, and it's just kind of a strange scene and it, I, it's really to me obvious that like oh that's your first indication okay you're in a game and she's she's trying to help feel the reality of this game and keep track of where where her reality is beginning and ending um and then but then as you said there is this blending that happens between the levels and that's part of the message of the film right like when he when they're in the chinese restaurant and he gets freaked out and he pauses existence Right, he says a pause. There's that great scene. It's like like the, the table becomes the bed, and his face goes into the table. Uh, but and when he comes out of that, he says, "Do you ever feel a bit like a game character?" And then, of course, you find out later that that's ironic because they're still in the game. They just went from one level to the other. And then there's at the very very end when she kills the surgeon. At the end, her hair has been changing. Right, it's like crimped or fully permed, depending on what level of game. But then right after that happens, when she freaks out, it's like, did I win, did I win? Um, you can, her hair changes to like a blend between the two. And I feel, it, to me, especially on rewatches, it seems like it's like the levels of the game are collapsing as she's starting to do the exit. I just thought it was real. there's lots and lots of little things that are really enjoyable on a rewatch of this film that I think um, I missed the first, you know, one or two times I watched it. Yeah, it's definitely one that I'm going to have to rewatch because I think you're right. There's lots of little moments. And again, it's one of those things where it's like you're trying to focus so hard on trying to maybe decipher between whether it's reality or not that I more than likely missed a great deal of those little moments. But um, I did like that idea at the end when there's that big battle scene. I assumed that that was supposed to be a representation of the layers collapsing on one another. Right. And again, that is something that I think is very frightening this concept of virtual reality where especially when it's as invasive as you're getting this like umbilical cord shoved into your uh, spinal cord that this idea that the world that you're in could begin to collapse and what does that do to your mind as your mind is trying to grapple with the fact that multiple layers of a perceived reality now are merging into one what does that do not only to your mind in terms of what is it how do you view that reality being perceived or how is your perception of that uh, reality collapsing? But also, what does that do to your brain in the long term? Like, 
then is it kind of like you mentioned Inception? Do you just go into this infinite blackness then? Are you just stuck there while, because the the data or whatever from the world is just all corrupted now? Are you trapped in the game forever? Are you a vegetable? Are, is there a chance you're gonna starve in the real world if you get too lost in these layers of uh, virtual reality? So in that regard, I found this film to be, I guess, the concept more disturbing than Videodrome because in the long run, like if I'm comparing the two, Videodrome, I'm never gonna be searching out Videodrome to watch people getting murdered on TV. But in this, if it starts out as something very sort of just like pedestrian where it's like, hey, this is a new form of interactive media that is not sinister in its creation, then it's like, yeah, maybe you start to play with it and you get new downloads and then, oh, you have to go into this reality and that reality, and then you just find yourself in the rabbit hole and you forget where you began. And that is a concept that for me is very frightening just in terms of all the evolutions we've seen in technology from even when this film was released. Think about not even virtual reality, but multiplayer games you mentioned from 99 to 2020, you used to only be able to have like what, I don't know, eight people in a game and now you can play first person shooters with 200 people or something crazy like that. So just the advancements in technology and how we don't seem to have any limits that we set on ourselves. We just want everything to be bigger and better and what are the ramifications of bigger and better in terms of just when we try to scale up too quickly right you got we, we, all, we get so obsessed about whether we could do it we never stop to think if we should to quote dr malcolm yeah <laughs> um yeah i do feel like uh existence is the scarier film i mean it's this is kind of a tangent but we, we've already basically achieved uh, maximum screen resolution we're reading a long time ago that uh, this is maybe 20 years ago when we were first, you know, when HD TVs were coming out and maybe 4Ks were in development. We called it, used to, used to, it was originally called Quad HD and they changed it to 4K. But anyway, I remember reading an article that said that 8K, what we would now call 8K, is essentially the maximum screen resolution because the human eye, like 2020 vision, can't determine better than that. And so once we all have 8K televisions watching programming filmed in 8K, our eyes are not going to be able to discern between that and reality. Especially once, especially once they make improvements on 3D, you know, like subtle 3D technology, that within our lifetimes, we're going to have media that we, like our eyes will not be able to distinguish from real life. Um, and when you couple that with, you know, recent news articles, you got you know, YouTube characters that don't exist, that don't exist, right? You got people who aren't real people, we're not YouTube stars or whatever. Like we're already there, right? We already live in a world and are increasingly susceptible to deception um, in ways that Cronenberg could never have predicted even with existence. <laughs> but I feel like the real world is already so much more terrifying than anything in this film. <laughs> Um, that it really is something to pay attention to as we continue to develop new forms of entertainment media about how people get lost in it. And we're, we're making things that are going to be increasingly easy to get lost in and bubbles and rabbit holes that are increasingly easy to get stuck in. Scary stuff. <laughs> I would love to see Cronenberg make a narrative around like deep fakes or things like right. that in terms of just like completely creating people that don't exist or just manipulating images that we already have access like the manipulating technology that we already have in a way that nobody could perceive right because 
that's kind of the big difference for me between Existence and Videodrome is that Videodrome took on a very uh, sinister uh, plan behind it, right? A sinister utilization of it. Whereas Existence, it just began as a game, a form of entertainment. And to see technology being manipulated from the creator's original intention is a very scary thing. And that's a very real thing, right? You see people losing control of something that they've uh, created and being manipulated by whether it's corporations or people with ulterior motives and these things. That's a concept that I really appreciated about Existence and uh, how Cronenberg handled that. The difference, I think it's so key, the difference between Videodrome and Existence, because I feel like it was a journey that Cronenberg went on because when he made Videodrome, he's thinking, okay, what's, you know, what are the ramifications of, given what I know about human nature and our proclivity for violence and sex, you know, what is the, what is going to happen with this kind of technology? And it seemed like the message of Videodrome, one of the messages was, you know, oh, look, people are going to get brainwashed into doing depraved acts of violence. Um, and then by the time he made Existence, I think he realized that actually that's not the real danger. The real danger is not people becoming actual assassins. It's people wanting to play video games to pretend to be assassins and having and just like losing their whole lives into that, right? Into the right. pretend world. Um, that's, that's really the danger. <laughs> so Existence is the more realistic um, journey that we all uh, we all are going on in some, ever since we all played Nintendo. I mean, we're all in some form of that journey. Um, everyone alive in these days is anyway. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that that is the element, again, of Existence that for me, again, is my biggest takeaway from it is that it just, again, once again, his ability to look at humanity in a cynical lens and be like, yeah, we can have these what seem like big evolutions in technology that will eventually benefit us in some form and just seeing that if we're given any sort of freedom to experiment with things we just lack the self-regulation to be like hey let's make this video game world and have one layer so that way it never becomes confusing but then it's like well what about two layers what about three layers what about four and it we do not have the ability certain people in our society to say no to things like that and i think that it's one of those things where as soon as it gets away from you, when does it stop? To the point where is everybody going to log into this game and then nobody ever logs out? And then what happens to society? Right. And I think that I would really like to see him have a film with an even height, more heightened sense of tackling consciousness. This idea of like, well, can AI societies then begin to be built themselves and all that whole thing. And that's a rabbit hole that you could go down for uh, eternity to a certain extent. And I think that that's a concept if he... Uh, ever gives us another original film, I would love to see him do another iteration on that 20 plus years later. Yeah, and lots of other people have done similar analysis. Since, I mean, even Wally, for crying out loud, mm -hmm. yeah. <laughs> his characters that are lost <laughs> in video games all day. Um, but uh, but he was definitely one of the first. Um, and this this is a really, I think, important film for that, for anybody you know wanting to think about the, the dangers of virtual reality. And, and th this is a a very important addition to that that whole discussion. I do think it's interesting. There's so many lines in the film, um, which which at first listen seem to be Allegra usually, but any it's denigrating kind of real life, right? Like you know, it's just like real life, um, but just enough to make it enjoyable. Free world is not a big uh, sorry. Free will is obviously not a big factor. You have to play the game to find out why you're playing the game. Like, there's all these like little snide lines, which are real. I mean, really funny 
snide lines, you know, talking about, oh, well, real life is pretty lame anyway. You might as well play a video game version of real life. And I think you you, you could listen to those lines. I mean, they're funny. I think it's, it's a very funny film. Yeah. Um, you could listen to those lines and think, oh, yeah, life is really pointless. But I, but I, I don't think that's the point of what he's trying to say. I think the point of what he's trying to say is how easy we can be and to manipulate how easy we can be manipulated into thinking life is pointless mm-hmm. and end up end up lost in these things and that really ultimately the big battle just like in video in video drum the big battle for the human mind is you know who's going to control television media um the big battle is it, the updated battle that he talks about in existence is are, you know are we going to take ourselves out of reality and that's a concept that i think is I'm very impressed at, because I was somewhat skeptical in before going into Existence, just this idea, he's going to build off of a concept that he'd already worked on before. And there's been plenty of examples of directors that have tried to pick up a work a series of decades later and make something that tries to rival it or dabbles in similar themes. And yet he's able to really use that technology angle. And Cronenberg is so fond of technology, of course, and in, in science and discussing his films that he's able just to tackle the next evolution of technology from Videodrome to Existence without it being, without it hitting along a lot of the same lines. I think it's fantastic to watch these two films back to back, especially, and then comparing and contrasting them, but it's not necessary. it never feels like he's just kind of like returning to the well with different technology. It's more, it feels like an evolved conversation because the technology's evolved, of course, but also in the period between Videodrome and um, and uh, existence have people evolved that much, or has technology out evolved us? And I think we know the answer to that to a certain extent. But um, yeah, these are two films that I really enjoy watching back to back, like I did uh, earlier today, actually, and just kind of revisiting them because he shows a lot of growth between those two films, and even in between. I don't, I'm not super familiar with a lot of his '90s films, but um, I'm pretty sure they were not as sort of like far out technology focused concepts as Videodrome was. So to see him return to that somewhat familiar concept and expand on it and to make it not feel super dated, even to like, I think some of the humor moments feel a little dated and just like, like when he jumps up and shouts Existence pause, like I was dying laughing at that moment. That's a very kind of just like cheesy, hilarious moment. But in terms of just the technology itself, the way that we utilize this bizarre fleshy biotech is still incredibly disturbing and really has a lot of parallels to the way that people use modern technology nowadays in uh, 2021. Yeah, and I I do think uh, these films are different. It's not like Existence is a sequel. They're different films. Um, They're just very similar kind of spaces in kind of social discussion, I think, you can have about both of them. Um, I do, I have to mention on Existence, we have not talked about, like, the metaphors for sex throughout this yeah. film, <laughs> and how it's just, like, so many scenes in this movie are a metaphor for losing your virginity. Uh, but it wouldn't guy, be a Cronenberg movie if he didn't. I right? know, I know. I mean, obviously, there's the there's the really obvious stuff, you know, the bioports and what they look like, and you, like, fondle them to... <laughs> to to play the game and but then there's other stuff like there's, there's a you could have a whole discussion about how an infect infecting of the pods is like a, a metaphor about 
venereal disease. And the greatest scene, though, is when she accuses him of blowing her pod, like destroying her pod when his, like, sword's out. All I could think of is, like, this is playing just like a bad, like, rom-com where a girl thinks she got impregnated. And she's like freaking out about getting pregnant. It's like the whole thing is just like that. There's so many different jokes and, and metaphors about sex in this film. Um, and, but I, but again, I, I think that's, that's very accurate to how a video game feels like a long play video game. You are like you're supposed as you as the character are the virgin, right? You're stepping into this world and everybody around you knows what's going on and you don't, right? And everything is a new sensation and a new thing you have to experience for the first time. And it's scary and adult sounding and you know all, all of these things you could draw. I just thought it was really, uh, it's just an interesting way to play it. And in some cases, like it's so weird, right? Because you have Videodrome, which is a film about like a pornographer and some S&M, uh, scenes and stuff, but I feel like I was more uncomfortable watching Existence than Videodrome in some places. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, when people start like entering each other's ports in their spine, when she's like licking her fingers and shoving her fingers in there, and then he's like trying to lick her port and all this stuff, that was very gross. But I think that it has, I, I find Videodrome more uncomfortable to watch just because of the overall casualness with how a lot of those things are presented, whereas in uh, existence, everything is brand new and it's supposed to be scary and it's supposed to be exciting to a certain degree. But yeah, there's there's a lot of, Cronenberg uh, is not very subtle in those uh, instances in terms of like blending the two and his portrayal of sex and a lot of things. But at the same time, he does it in a way that it really, it comes into his signature style that in a way that doesn't feel, I don't know, like exploitive, if that makes sense. It doesn't oh, yeah. feel as scummy it's uncomfortable, but it doesn't kind of feel sleazy to a certain degree. It's very um, awkward in a lot of times and just very kind of shocking for brief moments. But then again, he never perseverates on any one thing for too long. We don't get four scenes of Jude Law trying to like lick her port or whatever. Right. And we kind of just move on from that and go to the next thing. And then we get another instance later on, but he has a very strong temperament as a director, never to linger on any one element for too long in a way that I think makes his films incredibly engaging, not only because of the subject matter, but just in the literal pacing of the film or in the journey from uh, the beginning to the finale in a way that really allows his films to age uh, more gracefully than I think a lot of his, uh, well, some of his peers maybe from that era or of his generation of filmmaking. No doubt. He, I mean, he's just, a, he's just a flat out great filmmaker. I mean, he's a great director. His editing is also, is always just super tight. There's, there's never, I've never seen a Cronenberg film scene that I thought was gratuitous. Not, there's not gratuitous violence, gratuitous sex. There's no gratuitous anything. It's just all the films are really tightly woven um, and everything is there is there for a reason and nothing is there just to shock or just to titillate or anything. I mean, it's just everything is there in service of, of, uh, of the film. I just love Cronenberg. Everything he makes, it's a, it's a great film. Yeah, and this is part of what I've loved about having these Masters of Horror segments where focusing on a director and then having other people bring the film to me to talk about and this idea that I get to experience now parts of their filmography that I wasn't necessarily super familiar with. Obviously, 
the fly and uh and videodrome i was but like existence that's a part of his filmography that i'm not super familiar with so now i want to go back and watch other 90s cronenberg films even if they're very different like i've never seen crash i want to go watch crash i want to go see naked lunch and these different movies that normally for whatever reason like they didn't pop up in my immediate watch list and it's like now after talking with you about it and being exposed to other parts of their filmography i have a reason to i have a new a new drive to rather to search out some of uh some of their beloved films that i've somehow just missed but yeah i think that's a pretty good uh, place to wrap up our discussion but as always mike uh, it's a pleasure having you on to talk uh horror and especially cronenberg for this episode oh, i appreciate it it was i, I loved an excuse to go back and rewatch these films and uh, revisit, um, yeah, why, why I love Cronenberg too. Um, and I'm glad you chose him as one of your months to focus on and happy to take part, it's great. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to Daily Horror Habit on your preferred streaming service and follow the show on Instagram at Daily Horror Habit and on Twitter at Daily Horror Pod for episode updates. Thanks again for listening and I'll see you guys next time.